0: Before, verse 22, a unit centering on Nicodemus and his dialogue with Jesus. After, verse 22, a unit centering on John the Baptist and his redemptive historical relationship to Jesus. The first unit, verses 1 to 21 of chapter 3, there is little controversy about the division of the parameters. It consists... Of a threefold exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus's nocturnal visit, verse 2, and his interrogatives, verse 4 and 9, how can these be? place him squarely in the role of a learned seeker. It is of some interest to notice that in these three scenes, Jesus' replies to Nicodemus are increasingly longer. Climaxing with an extended discourse by the heavenly knower who has himself already seen the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' first reply is a one liner in verse 3. His second reply is more extensive in verses 5 to 8. And the third reply is, in effect, a mini discourse, verses 11 to 21. Turning now to the question of literary devices, the Nicodemus narrative is an example of Johannine misunderstanding. Christ speaks of rebirth. Nicodemus wonders at the senior citizen impossibility. Notice also the Johannine dualisms. Flesh versus spirit, verse 6. Earthly versus heavenly, verses 12 and 31. He who believes, he who does not believe. That is, he who has faith, who does not have faith, verses 15, 16, and 18. Saved versus perish, verses 16 and 17. He who is judged, he who is not judged, verse 18 and finally, light versus dark, verses 19 to 21. Now, these dualisms are a reflection of two orders, a heavenly order and an earthly order, an uncreated order and a created order, a pristine order and a fallen order. The contrast in the two orders comes to expression in the term Anothen, born again, or born from above. This term is intentionally ambiguous to the mind of Nicodemus. It is a linear, horizontal concept, re-emergence from the maternal womb, a begetting of the order of the flesh. But Anothen, for Jesus, is tied to who he is, and what he brings. He is the one who has descended from heaven, verse 13. In fact, heaven is ep-exegetical of anothen. Ep-exegetical means it adds to the understanding. Notice verse 31. Where the one who comes from above, anothen, is directly parallel to the one who comes from heaven. Heaven. He who comes from above, directly parallel to he who comes from heaven. The begetting of which Jesus speaks is vertical. It is an eschatological begetting. It is an eschatological birth from above. The only way one can see that heavenly arena is to be begotten from that arena, The generation for entrance into the kingdom of God must be performed by the one generated by the Father of the kingdom. The eschatological begetting is itself patterned on the only begotten. Our being begotten is tied to His being begotten. Birth in the redemptive historical arena is related to birth, in ironic quotes, in the eschatological arena. The eternal generation of the ontological son has redemptive historical consequences for the regeneration of the sons and daughters of God. That eternal generation of the ontological son is ordo salutis, order of salvation, and we may rightly speak of the regeneration of Christ by his resurrection from the dead as Peter does in 1 Peter 1.3 as the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation. Jesus was born again. Yes, he was born again by resurrection, redemptive historically speaking. What is regeneration but a transition from death to life? And Jesus goes through that transition. He goes from death to life. He is born anew by the resurrection from the dead. Your regeneration is not anchored in some wispy abstraction. Your regeneration is anchored in a redemptive historical performance. Jesus has been regenerated, and you are regenerated in his regeneration, You belong to an act which has occurred in time and space history. That's the reason he came into the flesh to do it. This is not Greek Platonism. Nor is it evangelical idealism. John is even more profound than this. Our sonship is tied to the ontological sonship of Christ. Our begetting of water and the Spirit is linked to the one begotten of the Father who gives the Spirit. By this birth from above, we possess the eschatological, the heavenly arena. We possess the arena from which He comes who gives the rebirthing. We are made sons and daughters of God by the eternally begotten Son of God. Now, the divine activity here is essential to this pattern. It is not just the passive voice of the verbs. Is born, be born. Those are passive verbs, that is true. In the nature of the case, birth from above can only occur at God's initiative. Birth from that order requires that God do it. Boast your free will. Put forth your bloodline. Parade your church attendance. It is all a valley of dry bones. Unless God has birthed you. Unless heaven has generated you. Unless you have received the eschatological birth unless you have been begotten onothen from above, from out of heaven itself. But here is what you are assured. You are assured by that birth from above of sonship and daughtership out of the eschatological arena. You are assured of being children of heaven, born anothen from above, from heaven. You have not been born of water and the Spirit for destruction. You have been reborn of God and for God so that you may not perish. The eschatological birth has brought to you eschatological life. Your birth from above has brought you the life from above. Here is your life. Eternal as the life of the Son of God. Even as your birth is eternal as the ironic birth of the Son. Your life from above now begun will never end. Your birth from above now begun will never end. Eternal life, eternal birth. You have been admitted to never ending life as you have been admitted to never ending regeneration, rebirth. What wondrous love is this that God so loved you that he brought you into the life, the eternal life of his eternal kingdom. What wondrous love is this that God so loved you that he has begotten you to the sonship, the eternal sonship of his eternal kingdom. Nicodemus must unlearn his Jewish eschatology. Jesus asks him, Are you hodid Are you the teacher in Israel and do not understand these things? Verse 10. Are you the teacher who thinks in linear fashion? Eternal realities await the end of history. Heavenly realities are delayed to the end of the world. Are you thinking like a Jew thinks? that everything is on a line and only at the end of the world will eternity dawn. No, Nicodemus. I'm here to tell you that being born from above brings the future eternity into the present. The future comes forward for the Christian, for the Jew. It's a flat, linear horizon. We've left that behind. John left it behind. When he saw the risen Christ on that first day of the week, the apostles left it behind. The Jewish apostles left it behind. Paul left it behind. How did Paul, the Jewish eschatologist, leave it all behind? Because he saw the resurrection on the Damascus Road and he couldn't be a Jew anymore. No more. The future has come in to the present. Jesus says, Nicodemus, I'm going to give you a brief course in Eschatology 101. I'm going to give you a course in Voss's Eschatology 101. The eternal is present in the temporal. The eschatological is present in the historical. The realization of the heavenly has arrived in the earthly Now, even now, look at those tenses of the verbs. He who is born from above has, present tense, the heavenly birth. He who believes on the Son has, present tense, eternal life. No future eschatology but realized eschatology and yet not fully realized eschatology as per C.H. Dodd as if there remains no eschatological rest for the sons and daughters of God, a semi-realized eschatology, as per Gerhardus Voss, where the eternal overlaps the temporal and the heavenly invades the earthly. A now-not-yet eschatology. A semi-eschatology now-not-yet. Birth from above begun now. Birth from above to be continued and consummated not yet. Eternal life begun now? Eternal life to be continued and consummated? Not yet. The realized dimension of the Johannine eschatology sets us apart from the Jews. No, no, no straight line. And the yet-to-be-realized dimension of Johannine eschatology sets us apart from the liberal imminentists, the liberal, this-worldly, eschatological triumphalists. And implicitly, if you are a this-worldly eschatological triumphalist, you are implicitly a liberal, whether you know it or not. Now, there are two nubbly problems in this section. <clears throat> verse 5, water and the spirit. Verse fourteen, the word world. verse 16, the word world. The association of the phrase water and the spirit with baptism may be dismissed as a doctrinal imposition on the text. It reincorporates a certain fetish mentality over rites and rituals, something Jesus and John have already dismissed in chapter 2, and that devastating verse in chapter 1, verse 13, not blood, not flesh, not man, not sacerdotalism. Water in the spirit is redemptive historical imagery. It is not sacramental idolatry. The sacramental or baptistic interpretation is an aberration. It's an aberration in view of the fact that Jesus does not even institute Christian baptism until after his resurrection. The sacramental or sacerdotal interpretation of John 3 is eisegesis. It is reading a ritualistic agenda back on a text simply because it speaks of water. Does that mean that the woman at the well, when we have the word water, Jesus is talking to her about baptism? I think not. So, the Roman Catholic commentators and the high church commentators who see baptism in this language are imposing a ritualistic category upon the text that is not there. Then there are those who suggest that water and spirit are two contrasting aspects of the human experience, the physical and the spiritual. Water identifies the physical, the natural, as in the water breaks, the rupture of the amniotic fluid in childbirth. The Spirit identifies the spiritual or supernatural as in born of the Holy Spirit. Now, this interpretation has a certain air of plausibility, but it founders on the mini inclusio which envelops verses 3 and 5. Will you notice? Verses 3 and 5 that the kingdom of God binds this little section together. Thus, birth from above, verse 3, is parallel to birth of water and the Spirit, verse 5. In other words, the eschatological birth is birth by water and the Spirit. Now, what is this eschatological birth by water and the Spirit? We have to go back to the Old Testament. This is a redemptive historical category. This is redemptive historical language. In the Old Testament, water and spirit are images of the coming age of salvation. Isaiah 44.3, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. But the strongest passage is Ezekiel 36 verses 25 to 27 where the Lord says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you And cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The combination of water and spirit squeezing, bracketing verse 25 in that passage, verse 26 rather, in that passage where he's talking about regeneration. This is redemptive historical language. It is not baptismal language. Water and spirit are associated with the eschatological age of salvation and Jesus announces to Nicodemus that that age has arrived. The birth of water and the spirit brings the blessings of the kingdom of God. They are here now. I am here now. The order of water and spirit is the eschatological order, the order which brings the entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, with respect to the well-beloved John 3.16 and the term cosmos or world, we must begin our discussion where B.B. Warfield begins in his sermon, God's Immeasurable Love, in his collection of sermons preached at the Princeton Theological Seminary Chapel, entitled The Savior of the World. Warfield was first a professor of exegesis and New Testament at Western Theological Seminary in Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, PA, God's Country, until yesterday, before being called to Princeton Theological Seminary in 1887. The reason I point that out is that his exegetical skills are evident in this sermon even though he was appointed as a professor of didactic theology or systematic theology at Princeton in 1887. Well, what does Warfield do as an exegete? Warfield does what a true biblical exegete does. He asks, how does John use this term cosmos? The reply is that cosmos has no personal force. In John's Gospel, the word world does not refer to individuals as in the paraphrase, God loved each and every person in the world. No. Rather, Warfield sagely points out, cosmos has an ethical force in the Johannine corpus It means the arena of hostility to God and his kingdom. In other words, God's love is directed to the arena rebelling in hostility, in ethical hostility against him. It is to this arena that he sends his son. And in this arena, whoever believes has life from another arena the arena of eternity. Therefore, all the arguments about whether cosmos, or the word world in John 3.16, is universalistic or particularistic, are muted by tracing John's use of the term throughout his gospel, his epistles, his apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Cosmos, for John, is ethically specific This arena of sin and rebellion was the object of God's love. Not the angelic arena, not the infernal arena, but this cosmic arena. This cosmic arena was loved so that believers, however they come to believe, so that believers may not perish, but have the life of the non-cosmic arena. Who are these believers They are all the ones who receive heavenly things, not earthly things, verses 12 and 31. They receive the one lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness. They do not take their eyes off of him, verses 14 and 15. They receive the Son of God as the Son of Man, verses 13, 14, 16, 17, 18. They do not receive those who reject him, verse 33. They receive salvation. They do not receive judgment, condemnation. Verses 17, 18, 19. They receive the light. Verses 19 to 21. They do not love the darkness. Verse 19. They receive the witness of the Son whom the Father has sent. They do not receive the witness of those who deny or ignore Him. Verses 11 and 32. They receive eternal life. They do not abide in eternal wrath, verse 36. The eschatological birth brings one into Christological union, soteriological union, eschatological union, and the sweetness of that union is as the joy of the friend of the bridegroom, John the Baptist. Christ is better than all suitors. Union with Christ is the soteric ecstasy. Identification with Christ in eternal heavenly places is the presence of eschatological finality. Now I want to revisit John 3.16 in a slightly different way simply because of the crucial nature of this world-favorite verse. I want to begin by looking at the word cosmos again, not in the sense of each and every person in the world, which is how it is nuanced and paraphrased, but with reference to the arena, morally and ethically opposed to the kingdom of God. I want to illustrate this by two passages. There are actually many more. But I want to illustrate this by two obvious passages in the fourth gospel, beginning with John 8, 23. If you notice in that verse, Jesus is talking. And he says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. The Greek word that appears twice in that verse is the Greek word cosmos. There is no way that you can read that Greek word cosmos in this verse as meaning each and every person in the world. It will not work. But if you read that verse and those terms cosmos as ethical arenas, then the verse makes perfectly perfect sense. Chapter 9, verse 39, another illustration which clearly demonstrates that the word cosmos in the fourth gospel does not mean each and every person in the world. Jesus is speaking again in chapter 9, verse 39, and he says, "...for judgment I came into this world, and those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. For judgment I came into each and every person in the world." No, it makes no sense. Judgment, I came into this arena. I came into this area. I came into this order. Now, second, there are two passages in which the word cosmos definitely has a less than universalistic sense. That is a less than each and every sense Turning to chapter 12, verse 19, where the Pharisees, looking at one another after the triumphal entry, say, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. It is impossible to read verse 19 and the word cosmos. In the light of verse 18, the multitude went and met him, and to say that cosmos means each and every person in the world. It means multitude. It's restricted by its own context here. Now in chapter 14, verse 19, you have another clear instance in which cosmos must have a less than universalistic sense. Jesus says, after a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. The world will behold me. It can't be each and every person in the world. It's impossible to read that into the text. It's restricted to those who will not see Jesus anymore. It's restricted to the unbelieving world. And therefore, cosmos does not mean... In these four instances in John's Gospel, and there are more, you can multiply this by tracing the word through, the word cosmos does not mean each and every person in the world. And so translating cosmos in John 3.16 a translate to mean each and every person in the world, God loved each and every person in the world, is a translation of sentiment. It is not a translation of John's mind or the Holy Spirit's inspiration. But for the sake of discussion, For the sake of argument, let's consider John 3.16 and the word world as meaning each and every person in the world. Let's think about it. God so loved each and every person in the world that he gave his only begotten son. But what about Judas Iscariot? What does the Bible say about Judas Iscariot? In John 17, verse 12, Judas Iscariot is called a son of perdition. Jesus calls him a son of perdition. Jesus, the all-knowing, omniscient son of God, calls Judas Iscariot a son of perdition, which means perdition, damnation, destruction. Look at Revelation 17, 8 and 11, and you'll know what perdition is. Judas Iscariot is a son of damnation. Judas Iscariot is in hell. Jesus said so. Well, according to John 3.16, God so loved Judas Iscariot, but Judas Iscariot went to hell if God so loved each and every person in the world, including Judas Iscariot. So God's love was not a love sufficient to keep Judas Iscariot from perdition. Judas could be loved by God and go to hell. Love, you have to put it in quotes now, love then is not saving love. It's not a love of God which prevents someone going to hell. On this interpretation, you can be loved by God and be damned forever. That's if you're going to interpret John 3.16 and the word world as God means loves each and every person. If the world in John 3.16 means each and every person, then love means love which cannot prevent the loved one from going to hell. So world is general or universalistic, and love is general and universalistic, but not particular and specific, as in certain saving love. Thus, when we read that he gave his only begotten Son, we usually understand that gave refer to Christ's death on the cross for sinners. Hence, Christ's death on the cross benefits each and every person in the world, but in such a way that his death on the cross cannot prevent Judas Iscariot from going to hell. So on the interpretation that God so loved each and every person in the world that he gave his son to die on the cross for them, and that includes Judas Iscariot who is now in hell in spite of the fact that God loved him and Christ died for him, We must define love in John 3.16 as less than saving love. And we must define gave his only begotten son as less than savingly gave his only begotten son. Thus Christ's death on the cross for the whole world could not keep one person in the world, namely Judas Iscariot, from going to hell. We must now redefine the power of the blood of Christ shed on the cross. If Christ shed his blood on the cross for Judas Iscariot and Judas Iscariot can go to hell, then what Jesus did in shedding his blood on the cross does not secure salvation for Judas Iscariot. And if Jesus' blood does not secure salvation for Judas Iscariot, by this interpretation of John 3, 16, Jesus' blood on the cross does not secure salvation for anyone. No one. If world is general or universalistic, meaning each and every person in the world, and love is general or universalistic, meaning God loves everyone in the world, then gave, in the sense of Christ dying on the cross, is general and universalistic, Christ died on the cross for everyone in the world. But if Christ died for everyone and someone went to hell, then Christ's death on the cross does not secure or guarantee the salvation of anyone. Rather than certainly securing salvation of someone, Christ's death on this general or universalistic interpretation only makes salvation possible. It's the Robert Schuller Gospel possible for each and every one, certain for any and no one. The inexorable logic goes. If Christ died for each and every person in the world, yet Judas Iscariot and many more can go to hell when Jesus died on the cross for him and them, then the meaning of Christ's death on the cross has to be redefined. We have to change our definitions of what the cross means. The cross does not secure salvation for anyone any more than it did for Judas Iscariot. The cross only makes salvation possible for everyone, Judas Iscariot included. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a fundamentally radical redefinition of the power of the death of Jesus on the cross, if it be right. We assume, rightly that the death of Jesus is powerful enough to save sinners. Yet here is a sinner, Judas Iscariot, for whom Jesus died, but not powerfully enough to guarantee his salvation from hell. Either we give up the power of Jesus' death, or we give up Judas Iscariot as an object of that death. That is, either Jesus' death on the cross is not powerful enough to certainly, securely save sinners... Or Jesus' death on the cross was not intended to benefit Judas Iscariot or anyone else who goes to hell. Either Christ's death is universal for each and every person in the world, in which case Christ's death does not secure salvation for any person in the world, or Christ's death is particular for particular persons in the world, in which case Christ's death certainly and infallibly secures and guarantees the salvation of those chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Christ's death for particular sinners makes God's love particular and the cross a secure atonement for the sins of his elect. I don't know what's wrong with the logic. I continue to beg my Arminian friends to point out the fallacy in my thinking. What's wrong with my exegesis of the text? In summary, then, we may interpret world, John 3.16, as universal. This means love is universal. And that means the benefit of Christ's death is universal. Universal love is not secure, certain, or guaranteed saving love. Universal death of Christ is not secure, certain, or guaranteed saving death. We can interpret it that way, or we can say world in John 3.16 is other than universal, which means love in John 3.16 is other than universal. It is particular and specific, certain and secure, saving love, which means Christ's death is other than universal. It is particular and specific, certain and secure, saving blood for those for whom it was intended. He shall save his people from their sins. That's how Matthew puts it. Now I approached the Gospel of John from the beginning of the prologue, chapter 1, verse 1, as a proclamation of a new creation, in the beginning, a new in the beginning. A new era of salvation displayed in the incarnation of the Son of God we have described that new creation, that new era of salvation, as the gathering of the eschatological Israel. We saw that in the calling out of the disciples in chapter 1, verses 35 and following. We attached that and identified that with the display of Christ himself as the son of God, the eschatological son of God, who is himself the recapitulation of Israel in the flesh. We have presented that new creation, that new era of salvation, as the eschatological wedding in John 2, 1 to 11. And we have suggested that that new creation, that new era of salvation, is the era of the eschatological temple in John 2:13 to 22. We have described the new creation, that new era of salvation, as the era of the eschatological birth in chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And now we reach the second narrative unit in this third chapter. John 3:22 to36. Now there's that phrase Metatauta again or after these things in verse 22, which is a narrative marker marking a new story supported by a shift in scene. We have moved from Jerusalem, notice verse 23 of chapter 2, To Enon, notice verse 23 of chapter 3. We have a scene shift, therefore we have a change in narrative. The dialogue with John the Baptist comprises verses 22 to 30. This section is a narrative unit in itself. It is in this remarkable unit that the Baptist says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease the consummate portrait of a servant, a humble servant, one who is not seeking the spotlight. It is a verse virtually impossible for the modern evangelical and even increasingly reformed church to understand as craving the spotlight, and the place for influencing the masses. One after another, they sell their souls to become personalities. If you are ever tempted by that devilish suggestion, look up John 3.30 and read it again. And let it sink into your soul. And when it sinks into your soul, then let it control your life. And if anybody ever offers you the spotlight, say, get thee behind me, Satan. He must increase. I, sinner that I am, I must decrease. As Peter Vostein said from this pulpit yesterday morning brilliantly, you look to Christ and the mysteries of Christ, not at the man. We are transparent. Do not make idle shrines of us. Look to the one who increases. With every day, every year, until he comes again in glory. For has Jim Dennison been raised up from the dead? No. Jesus has. He must increase. Away with this attitude of creating reputations for ourselves. So that we'll have our fingers on people's lives. And like the puppet master, be able to pull the strings and make them jump. The church is full of that. Churches that abuse are full of that. There are books written on this topic. Enough of it. We are not so called, nor are we to be so constructed. John the Baptist will leave the narrative Of the fourth gospel. With this valedictory. It is his parting speech. Him. Not me. I am off stage. I am out of the camera. I am out of the picture. The story is about him. Let the camera roll on him. Not me. But what about verses 31 36 What do we do with these 7 verses or 6 verses that are a conundrum to every commentator Are these verses a continuation of John the Baptist's remarks in verse 30 and previous. There are no quotation marks in the original Greek, even though you may have them in your English translation, because the original Greek doesn't have trans, uh, quotation marks, so that doesn't help us. Is it a quotation? That is, is someone even speaking? Or is it a commentary? Is it an expansion of John the writer of the gospel, upon motifs or themes already mentioned in this third chapter. What's going on in these final verses of chapter 3? Now this is an exceedingly complex question and a great deal of ink has been wasted on trying to solve it and so I'll waste some of your time with my suggestion. With the understanding that my suggestion is that... It is a suggestion, a potentially very fallible suggestion, which will be subject to revision if greater light ever comes to me. But this is the way I look at it right now, after having looked at it on and off for the last 30 years. Chapter 3 begins with the dialogue with Nicodemus. You notice that in verses 1 to 10, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And then we change to a discourse. In verses 11 to 21, Jesus launches into an uninterrupted discourse. Now, I want you to notice the parallel, that is the symmetry in the second unit of this third chapter. There's a dialogue with John the Baptist, verses 22 to 30, and then there is a discourse, verses 31 to 36. Now, if you're following my logic, the logic of symmetry, then you will notice that I am suggesting that if the discourse at the end of the Nicodemus dialogue is by Jesus, Jesus is speaking in verses 11 to 21, is it possible that the discourse at the end of the John the Baptist dialogue is also by Jesus? In other words, John 3, 31 to 36 is Jesus speaking again in this third chapter. Now, in order to strengthen my feeble case, I want you to look at the vocabulary in these two discourses. That is... The discourse of Jesus in 11 to 21 and the alleged discourse, I'm suggesting it's Jesus, in verses 31 to 36. I want you to notice the vocabulary. Verse 31. He who comes from above. Now look at verse 13. He who descended from heaven. Hmm. Now verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard and no man receives his witness. Now glance up at verse 11. We bear witness of that which we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Hmm. Verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Now notice verses 15 and 16. Whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Hmm. I'm noticing that the symmetry of arrangement suggests Jesus. I'm um, noticing that the symmetry in language suggests Jesus. There's no question about Jesus in verses 11 to 21. So, does that help us answer who's speaking in verses 31 to 36? Now, finally, notice verse 30. John the Baptist says Jesus must increase, but he must decrease. If John the Baptist is to decrease, even disappear, who else must increase? Who must appear on stage to speak? Who else but Jesus? Verses 31 and following. Now I think that verses 30 to 36 are the words of Jesus. And I admit that that's a complex piece of detective work. I also admit that I may be wrong. After all, Sherlock Holmes wasn't always right either. Nor Hercule Poirot. And I will confess to being persuaded of a more excellent way if you have data to present. Now that brings us to the brink of chapter 4 where we will begin next week. And now I will take questions or comments if you have them. David, you were very patient in the first hour
1: Temple. Is there an, an important chronology in before granting access to the temple, the purification has changed from water to Christ. Uh, the
0: the observation is that in the parallel in Matthew's gospel between the judgment of Draw, draw, drawing a, a comment uh, and, and is there any uh, elaboration or, or consistency in drawing it out namely uh, Jesus judging Satan uh, a Adamic motif in uh, Matthew's gospel uh, the cleansing of the miracle of Canaan and the cleansing of the, uh, the temple being a kind of uh, judgment motif in preparation for the new uh, era of Christ's blood. I don't think there's anything uh, out of out of the pattern of the general New Testament theology with that, I would want to know that the vocabulary of the narrative will justify such a suggestion. So I would be looking at atonement motifs, temple motifs, to see if there's any language which would draw me in that direction. It is certainly something worth considering. Yes, David? David? Okay. The question is, does 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease, does it have any redemptive historical significance? Yes, I do think that it's an indication of the superiority of Christ to the age of the prophets, which is passing away with John the Baptist himself. Okay. Uh, I could elaborate on that, but I, you know, I can't do everything, but you know, there, there is that in the uh, allusion. You had a second question? I don't have any problem with the implication of a free offer of the gospel. Will you find it in John 3.16 or someplace else? Well, I know that, but you think it can be extracted from the 3.16? If you're saying that the love of God comes into this arena which is ethically hostile to him and you're inviting them to flee that ethical arena, as per the end of the chapter 3.36, flee, flee the wrath to come, to use Pauline metaphor... I don't see any difficulty with that.
1: So there's a, you could say the general love of God the offer, but there's the particular love that is savingly indefinite.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, the, the revealed things belong to God, the secret council believe the, the revealed things belong to us, the secret council belongs to God. I'll leave the sorting out of that uh, you know to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> May I have my second question? I'm sorry, David, you want question number two? No, you can't have your second question until David down here has number one or somebody. Does anybody else have? Yes, Skeets. Oh, yeah. In terms of um, as far
1: as is it appropriate to say to the Christ died for you, and if not,
0: what should be said? I can't say that. Uh, why can't I say that? I can't say that Christ died for Esau. Jacob, oh, I loved Esau, if I hated. I cannot read the... the uh, predestined counsel of God. So what I do is I would say God offers to you as a sinner salvation in Jesus Christ. And I invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But I cannot particularize that which would put me in the place of God you know, operating from the standpoint of his omniscience. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to argue with, or fuss a whole lot with people that do that because I think they mean uh, they mean to do well or do good out of it However, I don't think it's biblically precise. So I think I have to be more biblically precise. And therefore, I, I want to make the free offer of the gospel, but I don't want to overstate the offer. Is that helpful? Okay, David. David.
1: Address you
0: I don't think the vocabulary means any necessary saving relationship, obviously. I think Jesus is not hostile to Judas. I think Jesus is open and effusive with uh, his willingness to receive any sinner that repents and comes unto him, Judas Iscariot included. And so he he can address him with dignity. He can address him even with a measure of, shall we say, common affection. But that does not imply that he's addressing him as a saved individual. Now your second question. Oh, I'm sorry, Cheryl. In regards to the
1: temple. And you're saying that with the coming of Christ, the temple was no longer it was finished as far as the temple was concerned. But now when you go into Revelation,
0: the temple is going to be rebuilt. He rebuilt. Why? Well, the temple is a symbol in the book of Revelation. The question is uh, if but John 2 is correct that the temple is gone in the history of redemption. Why do we see the temple in the book of Revelation? We see the temple in the book of Revelation because it's a book of symbols, a book of redemptive historical symbols. And in the consummate eschatological state or the state of eternal glory, the temple indicates God's eternal presence with his people, even as the temple theology is perfected and eternalized there but it does not mean that there is a literal temple there any more than it means there's a literal city with golden streets there. How are you going to talk about heaven into which the Apostle Paul was caught up and couldn't describe it because he didn't have any human language to talk about what he saw? You can only talk about it in analogous terms. Uh, So uh, for the book of Revelation, I commend William Hendrickson's More Than Comperors as a place to start. And then if you're really adventurous, you can graduate to Greg Beale's Monster Commentary. On the book of Revelation, though uh, you'll have to go very slowly on that one. David, your second question.
1: If, uh, if there's a closing of the prophetic age, Protestant uh, prophet John being the final prophet who must decrease, and the prophet's role.
0: Okay, good observation. The uh, common is, if John is the last Old Testament prophet and uh, he is decreasing, is it possible that we have a continuation of his valedictory in verses 31 to 36? He is indicating how he is diminishing. Uh, I do take that uh, suggestion seriously, but I, I, I'm faced with the vocabulary that Jesus uses to suggest this is not the language of John the Baptist. He does not use this terminology anywhere else in this gospel, nor does he use it anywhere else in the uh, synoptic records. He doesn't use language even like this. So this language suggests to me identification with Jesus. That, that's that's the way I parry that suggestion. Though I admit it's a very good observation in terms of the structure of the text. Yes, Skeets. Seems
1: like John really could have cleared
0: it up with what Jesus said. You know? <laughs> 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 I, Yes, but you see, he, he he had to leave some things for us to try to figure out. So. <laughs> All right, well, next week we will take up John 4. Thank you.